The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. We are very close to the end of a series we've been in in the New Testament letter to Titus. To Titus. And this series we've entitled Blueprints for Building. We are uh, in the process of expanding our facility to accommodate the growth that we're experiencing, which is amazing. We're super grateful to God for the amazing people he's bringing to Christ Church to find a home, for the transformation he's bringing to people who are coming to faith in Jesus and having their lives completely remade to see marriages restored and families healed and uh, hope instilled. And so it's just amazing stuff that's going on. And so we're in the process of building, but we're not just building a larger sanctuary to fit more people. What we're building is we're engaging with King Jesus to build his church, which he promised he would build and against which the gates of hell would not prevail. And that's what's more important. More important than brick and mortar is souls and people and families and and relationships. And so we look to the scriptures so that we have blueprints for building. We've been in this book now for seven weeks, and it's a, a letter from the apostle Paul to one of his protégés, Titus, who's a pastor and a leader, who's establishing young churches on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean in the first century. And Crete was a wild place to live and new people coming to faith in Jesus, and their, their lives are being renovated. Their hearts have been renewed. Uh, their spirits have been regenerated, and now their lives are being renovated. And so this book is about leadership. This book is about oversight. It's about influence, and it is about the core message of our faith. You know, all the things we've been learning about are important, and we need them. They're blueprints for building well, to have a growing and healthy church. We need We need mature leaders. Can I get amen? We need people who are of faith and influential. We need everybody using their gifts for the good of others. We need to be engaging in the world. All these things are true, but they are not the foundation of our faith. We have a foundation, and his name is Jesus. He's at the center of all this. This is about nothing but him. It's not about our church. It's not about this city. It's not about our identity. It's not about our voices being heard. It's about the name of Jesus being lifted up. And as we conclude Titus and we get into chapter three, which we're going to get into the the biggest chunk we've been in so far, this is what you're going to see at the very center. The foundation of how to build well is the good news about Jesus. So I want to read this together. Titus chapter three, verses one to 11. It begins with remind them. Somebody say, remind them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. 
These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. God, we thank you for your word to us. As it's been read in our hearing, we pray that it would be attended by the power of your Holy Spirit to transform. Lord, renew our minds in truth, strengthen our faith and our spirits, cause us to see Jesus more clearly and to, in the power of your spirit, direct our energy to fulfill the calling you have for us. May we be a devoted people, devoted and zealous for good works that are excellent and profitable and that are a blessing to the people all around us. God, the people that you love and died to save. God, would you continue to build your church? Would you continue to take back territory from the evil one and to establish your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? May your will be done in our lives. God, we confess our minds are alert. We are ready to hear from you. Our spirits are hungry. Give us soft hearts and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. 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 So we are in the process of building and we are trying to figure out when to do what. And so we have a plan to add a third service when we reach capacity in the two we have now. We're getting close. We're not there yet, but we got a big red button in the office and we're just waiting. We're hovering to hit that button and add a service. In the meantime, we're trying to expand our facility to accommodate more people, but that's going to take a year or more to build. And so we got to have a strategy to get there. And we're thinking about how do we project attendance and numbers and people and people now coming back unmasked and double vaxxed and ready to roll, ready to sing and worship Jesus and breathe on people and everything. So what's the, what's the trajectory going to look like? We're trying to figure that out. And in that conversation, we remembered a detail we were told, and that is that when you build a new building, you can expect an additional increase of about 30% just from people interested in your, in your project who are driving by. So we're like, okay, we got to factor that in too. And we know that's true because every time a new restaurant opens in town, you're like, well, I'm going to go there. Even if it's like not your favorite, you're like, I'm going to go once. I'm going to, because everybody does that. Something's going on. What's going on over there? Got to go and check it out. And of course, people are going to hear about it because people are going to talk about it. And so what do we do with that, with that visible expansion that draws in people? We're accommodating for it. But Titus, as Titus begins to close, Paul's writing to Titus to talk about uh, another transformation that actually becomes a demonstration that gathers people's attention. And if you're one of the eight people who still take notes, my sermon title this morning is The Demonstration of Our Transformation. The Demonstration of Our Transformation. Beyond just building a building that attracts other people's attention, people who would have driven by and seen Christchurch as just one of the 40 churches in Port Orange and the 400 churches in Volusia County and not wondered what goes on in here. When they start seeing steel beams and bricks being stacked, people go, I'm going to go check that out. And then of course, they're going to hear somebody say something about Christ Church in line at a restaurant or from their server, who knows what. And they're going to go, oh yeah, that's where they're building that building. And they're going to show up in there. But you know, that's not God's plan to grow his church. Never has been, never will be. 
God's plan to grow his church is when he puts his power on display in saving you and then changing you, conforming you into the image of his son. And so it's your transformation that becomes his demonstration. Can I get amen? amen. And that's what Paul draws us into. Now, I, let, I read 11 verses, and I could spend another month just taking these apart, and I'm not going to try to do that this morning, so you can take a deep breath. You're like, last week we were learning Greek words, and you just read a whole bunch of things. So here's what I want to do. I want to draw your attention to the manner in which the Apostle Paul makes this point, and instead of getting into all the things he says, see how they fit together. Because this passage begins, remind them, it starts with, and its emphasis is on, an admonition. And it's a sevenfold admonition which should get your attention. Whenever you see in the scriptures seven things listed out, that's meant to tell you something about what's going on structurally. Look at it with me, verses one and two. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, particularly interesting on Crete when everyone was essentially rebellious and prone to do whatever they want whenever they feel like it. So this would have been quite the transformation. Submissive to rulers and authorities, obedient, ready for every good work, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Count them, seven. Seven, it is not meant to be a comprehensive list, but by seven things being broken out, it is meant to give us a picture of wholeness, of a place God wants to take us from who we used to be to who he's making us into. Do you see it? And even the word in the seventh one, perfect courtesy, is a picture of wholeness and completeness. Listen, there are no perfect people. Can I get amen? amen. Aren't you glad nobody gets to be perfect? Some of us act like it sometimes. But there's no perfect people. But you can be complete. You know that. You can let God complete his work. You can be walking in wholeness. And that wholeness brings about a transformation. Not perfection, but a transformation. And so we start with this sevenfold admonition, which is then contrasted to our previous condition. Do you guys know before you met Jesus, you came into the relationship with a pre-existing condition? Did you know that? All of us had a little problem going on. And that's how most of us came to know Jesus in the first place, as we were bumping into all of the issues we created because of our pre-existing condition. Some of you guys got saved when you were six and seven years old. You didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of damage. Other, other ones of us got saved out of high school or in college, or Lord help us in our 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, and there's been a lot of trail of destruction behind us. We recognize that we keep doing the same things over and over and over, and the people it hurts is us and those closest to us. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And whether you're six or 60, we all are born with a pre-existing condition. And Paul reminds the, the Cretans of that, but he lumps himself right in there. And it's true for all of us. Look what he says. He says, we ourselves were once, count them, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Seven. Do you see him? Look at the picture. I mean, the, the picture is that it starts with you idiot. You got to love it. Talk about an upbuilding message. You idiot. And in fact, this word fool ends up a lot in the Old Testament when God's talking about his old people. Because not only do we all have 
a testimony of who we were and when God intervened to save us and then who he changed us into being. We're all in this kind of transition. That's all of our testimony. That's also a picture of God's people historically. Do you know that? When you read the scriptures from front to back, you ought to know when you're reading the Old Testament, you're reading about the period of time when God was relating to people whose primary descriptor was stiff-necked, right? You shouldn't read the Old Testament. I mean, there's some heroes of faith, certainly. There's some people that trusted God in instances and God used it for his glory and their deliverance. All those stories should be celebrated. But mostly, it's a cyclical story of everybody failing again and again and sometimes multiple times in the same generation. Nobody gets it right. I mean, the name Israel means contends with God. Do you know that? And so this is the old story of a broken, stiff-necked, and unbelieving people, but a transition came, and his name is Jesus. He was the perfect son of God. He was the God-man, God with us. He was the perfect Israelite, and he was the perfect human in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And at that point, there became an opportunity for a transition, not just for Israel, but for all humanity. And just like we have a testimony of where we were and who we were and what we did, and then we met Jesus, and everything began to change. That's the way we've got to read our Bible. Tiffany and I, and our kids, especially Meredith, she wants a pet, she wants a pet, she wants a pet. She's always, everybody walks the dog, she's petting, petting the dog, petting the cats. There's feral cats in the neighborhood. She's trying to find them and hold them and feed them and pet them. She loves animals. She wants a pet. So it's Christmas Eve, and uh, we go to Cracker Barrel, which, by the way, this is the best place for you to buy last-minute Christmas presents. That's for free, okay? <laughs> Nobody thinks of that. You think, you think um, homemade food, mashed potatoes, chicken and dumplings? No. Christmas shopping, okay? So we go into Cracker Barrel and we find this little fake dog on a little doggy bed and it has a battery in it. You turn it on and its little diaphragm breathes. And we're like, this is perfect for Meredith. We're going to get her this taxidermied puppy and it's going to scratch the itch and then we don't have to get an animal. So on top of all the Christmas presents, we get Meredith the little fake puppy and she loved it for like eight hours until the neighbor boy brings over a six-week-old kitten that he found in the road. And I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but Christmas this year was cold. I always joke that in Florida we have two seasons, summer and Christmas. Winter really fell on Christmas this year. It was like 30 degrees outside. And so I didn't have the heart to throw the abandoned kitten out into the freezing cold, so we brought the kitten in, first mistake. And then the next day, I mean, he's, we got him in a little cage, in a little bed and whatever. And so we take him to the, the animal clinic, the emergency one, the day after Christmas. Not everybody's open. And uh, paid way too much to have him dewormed and defleed and an antibiotic. And I'm over here medicating this little thing for nine days and trying to nurse it back to health. It's got all the little street bugs. And um, the kids named him Charlie, second move. Oh, no, he has a name. And um, so before you know it, every, he's, he's, he's our cat. And now we have a cat. And nobody cares about the taxidermy puppy at all. Totally <laughs> wasted gift. But, but uh, Charlie now, he's gotten a little bigger. And at first he was like the perfect little kitten, which is why we kept him. But it's because he was all so sick. And once he got healthy, he got crazy. I mean, he's like a total psycho. He was, he's this little orange tabby and he'll curl up right in your lap and purr. And he looks so, and then he'll just turn on you. He thinks he's a lion and you're a gazelle. I mean, he'll sink his teeth like deep in your arm out of nowhere. And he'll hide under the couch. And when the kids walk by, he'll like run out and pounce and like, I mean, full on claws and teeth. I'm like, yeah. 
Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm like with crazy Charlie Kitty and I'm bleeding from the arm and I'm thinking, I wonder if this is how God felt about his people for all those years. <laughs> Just things were going along so well and now, oh, you know? It's crazy. But this is a story of God's people. And there's something wrong with them and us. There's an inherent brokenness, a darkness, but his light shed into our hearts. He brought healing into our brokenness. He brought faith into our inability to see. So there was a transition. So this is what our lives should look like. And so the apostle Paul in this letter, he goes, here's a sevenfold complete person that we should all be reminded to strive towards. Be that this is who you're supposed to be now, that something has changed. Remember who you were? And so we contrast our admonition to our pre-existing condition. But we have to remember, this is not about be this way, don't be this way. I was reminded of uh, Newton's law of inertia, the first law of thermodynamics. You guys know this. Some of you remember this. I'm a homeschooling dad right now, so all these things are fresh, right? (laughs) That is, the law is objects at rest stay at rest unless acted upon by an outside force or objects in motion stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside force, which is somewhat counterintuitive in a world where everything falls down and stops moving. Newton posited and discovered this law of inertia, the things will just keep moving. And it's important for us to remember that because that's all of our story. Do you know that? Do you know the course you were on? You would not have stopped from that course unless you were acted upon from an outside force. You were heading headlong to your own destruction and no one could talk you out of it and nothing was going to deter you from where you were going. You were driven. You were led astray, disobedient, foolish, and a slave to your passions. That's what Paul says. But we who have faith in Jesus were acted upon by an outside force and our course began to change. Can I get amen? And this is the point that Paul makes and this is the center of this section, verse four. But when, I love that, you should too. Every time you're reading your Bible and you see a but, I'm going to do at some point, I'm going to do a series called Big Butts of the Bible. That's what I'm going to do. It's going to be a 90-part series. And we're going to do all the butts, all the big butts. This is such an important but. Why? Because you are on course to your own destruction. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We have to regularly remind ourselves to forsake our inner impulse to self-atone. I don't know where this came from. I I do not know where this came from. We all have this inert, uh, interior impulse to self-atone, to mess things up and then to go, let me fix it. We do this in our relationships. We go, I'm sorry. Isn't it funny how us guys, once we realize we've done something wrong, then all of a sudden we start doing the dishes and helping out with stuff that we didn't used to help out with. We're like, no, you see, I really love you. I'm really showing you that. And then after a while you're like, okay, back to what I was doing. Like, what is that? We all have this internal impulse to self-atone. People do it all the time. You, you, something's going bad in your life and you feel, I gotta get my life straightened out. And so you decide to go back in church, but you can't just go back to church. It's not like Friday, you're like, I need, I need change in my life. And then Sunday you go to church. Oh no, that's too easy. First you have to start doing nice things for people, dressing, getting up early, doing the things you remember to do. And then after about four or five weeks, if you didn't mess up, then you feel like, okay, now I'm ready for church. False, the apostle says. He saved us because he acted upon us when we were going off course. You, you, can't, you can't put this together. You can't do it. You'll never get yourself ready enough. Do you know that? It's a transition. It's a transition that God caused. He came into human history. He made the difference. He's the one who is the source of 
the transition, not you. But it's a transition that does lead to a transformation. And this is important. You know, this word transition, we're only hearing it. It's been, it's been hijacked in, in the gender fluidity conversation. You've heard, you'll hear that transition, transition. I have people that, uh, with gender dysphoria who are going, trying to understand why they feel one way on the inside and it doesn't match with their body. And this is a really challenging subject, very touchy subject, but that word keeps coming up that someone will say, oh, I'm in transition. I'm in transition. The same is true. No matter what the situation, you can't change yourself from the outside in. It can't be done doesn't matter what you're walking through. We need a transition that comes from someone else and that happens on the inside so that the transformation can come out to the outside. It never works outside in. It never works outside in. You apply it to any situation. You can't dress yourself up enough to feel good enough. You can't put yourself in an environment where you're affirmed enough. You can't create for yourself enough security, but you were made to be accepted, made to be significant, made to be secure, but you need God to bring it to you so that you can be changed on the inside. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter where the impulse comes from. It doesn't matter how it applies. It doesn't matter where the source of your pain is. You need a transition that brings about a transformation. You just don't have it. You don't have it. You can't make it work. There's not enough changes that you can do from the outside in. But we have a God who is powerful enough to bring about the change you need and every human needs and to do that from the inside out. And look what, he's, look what he says. How does he do it? Not by works done by us in righteousness, not, not outside in, not religious. Nope, according to his mercy, his love for you, his power, his compassion. And look how he did it. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's important that we get this, and it's interesting that this passage falls today because today is actually on the Christian calendar, Pentecost Sunday. Today is the, sun, is the Sunday when we commemorate and celebrate what happened in the first century after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, where he was inaugurated to his kingship and his high priestly role. But before he could carry out the purpose and mission of the church, before the kingdom of heaven would grow like he said, a mustard seed goes into the ground, becomes the largest of the plants in the garden, so big that the tree or the birds come to plant their nests in there. He said, that's what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And then he went into the ground and then he rose again but there was a period of time when he said not now go shed the good news go spread it around go tell everybody Harold the king has come no he said wait and do nothing you guys remember the visa commercials remember when there was one credit card remember the visa commercials I remember being a kid being like six years old waiting for and commercials used to be like two and a half minutes now they're like 19 minutes. I'm like, what show am I waiting for? I think I paid to watch this. And I'm watching 74 commercials in a row. What is going on in the room? That's another message. And so, but I remember this commercial. Remember Visa, or was it MasterCard? Don't leave home without it. Remember that was MasterCard? Yeah, I was six, so. <laughs> Don't leave home without it. This is what Jesus is saying about the Holy Spirit. He says, yes. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the God-man. Yes, I did do what I promised that I would do. No one saw it coming. I was victorious over death in the grave. He ascended into heaven. Before he ascended, he said, wait 
in Jerusalem, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But don't try to do anything without the power of the Holy Spirit. But what happened on Pentecost? Pentecost means 50 days and it's 50 days after Passover. And it's one of the feasts that has to do with harvest where you thank God for the harvest that he's provided. And then you celebrate fun. And then you give generous offerings, also fun. He said, wait till that day. And that was the day that God chose to pour out his Holy Spirit, which then empowered the faithful in Jesus to be witnesses, to bring a harvest of souls. Isn't that awesome the way that he did that? But he created this gap and he said, wait, He said, wait. And so in redemptive history, there's a transition. Old covenant, stiff-necked, unbelieving, nobody gets it right, always a faithful remnant, faith is always there. But if it wasn't for God continuing to move in, continuing to move in, and then there was a transition. Think about it this way. In the beginning, there was darkness. And God shone in small and tiny ways, visible like the night sky with stars. And occasionally there would be a, a moonlight enough to see a little bit. He would act in the darkness. But a time came when he emerged and the glory of God appeared like the dawning of the sun. And now everything is visible. This is what the age we're living in. We're living in the the age of the daylight, of the light of Christ that expels the darkness. And that was what our story was. We were living in darkness. It was light around us, but our eyes were closed and something moved upon us. And then we could see. I once was blind, but now I see. It was a transition. That transition leads to transformation. And this all centers around the Holy Spirit. So there was, a, there was a period of time there, but now we've received the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if some of you have actually. Uh, Tiffany and I have this conversation. They're in the Christian church, and we don't need to like argue about this, but in the Christian church, there's like four slash five theological positions on what the Bible calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Heard that phrase? The baptism of the Holy Spirit. So on the far right end of the spectrum, or left, doesn't matter what side they're on. There's the Pentecostal perspective, which takes its name from the day I just mentioned, Pentecostal. And they believe that there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that is secondary to salvation. So you put your faith in Jesus, you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, and you're saved, but you're not spirit-filled until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit, and then you're spirit-filled. This is why when I meet people in, around town and they say, oh, what kind, of, what kind of church do you lead? And I say, oh, it's non-denominational. And they say, is it spirit-filled? And I say, are you Pentecostal? Right? Because you'd only ask that question if you imagine that not only in the transition of human history, but also in every human's experience, there's a gap between their salvation and their spirit filling. They see that. They see that paradigm and they play that into the experience of every person. So they'd say, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you don't have any spiritual gifts. You don't have power for witness. So you know God, you're truly saved, but you're not spirit filled. Do you see the gap there? And then on the other side over here, there's a group of people called cessationists, and they believe that the Holy Spirit did a lot of things in the first century that are different from now, and that's one of them. So when you get saved, you believe, you're you're made new, and the Holy Spirit moves in right away, and there's no need to do anything extra because that baptism of the Spirit is what the Bible calls regeneration, and so there is nothing else. And there's also no more spiritual gifts because God did that to get things started, and now we're so glad that weird stuff's over because it freaks us out. (laughs) Anybody grow up in a church like that? You can't raise your hand because you were taught you shouldn't. Ah, I gotcha. Right? Frozen, chosen, there you are. Wait, the Holy Spirit's done everything he's ever going to do. No more to be had. Those are, big, those are big varieties, huh, of different people. So Tiffany and I actually 
we're more closer to the center, but we don't totally agree. So we sometimes have this theological debate. I think you guys would like that sometime if we like went live on a date while we're at a restaurant eating dinner and discussing the finer points of theology and not agreeing. I think that would be entertaining. We could have a show. You guys would watch that, right? We could do that. So, but the, the point is, no matter what end of the spectrum you're on, and both, there's some, there's some dangers on both ends. So a lot of Pentecostals, or you'll hear people say, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. They would see tongues as the evidence that you're filled with the Spirit. The only problem is the scriptures literally say, not everyone speaks in tongues. Do you know that? It literally says that. You have to like just ignore that altogether to come to that conclusion. But a lot of times, especially during revival periods, which Pentecostals look back to for the source of many of their denominations, there was a move of the Holy Spirit where lots of people were speaking in tongues, and so it was more normal than abnormal over here on this end. But over here on this end, people that believe that the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Spirit is simply salvation, well, if there is more, you've just shut yourself off to it completely and have zero expectation. And so those ends are both rife for missing some really beautiful things from God. And here's the most amazing thing. Through Jesus, our great high priest, we have been purified to be a vessel for the Holy Spirit through a transition that we receive by faith. But there's a transformation that God wants to bring that you can't accomplish without the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know it? And the good news is for Pentecostals, even if you're wrong about tongues, you got the Holy Spirit. The bad news is for cessationists, you don't think there's anything to have, and maybe you're afraid. One of my favorite sermons uh, of all time by Robert Morris, who is a charismatic. He's all the way over here. He's just not quite in the Pentecostal camp because of the tongues thing. Uh, He has a sermon called My Friend the Holy Spirit, um, and the sermon title is The Holy Spirit's My Friend and He's Not Weird. So I just love that. And I know some people who have come from a more traditional background start talking about the Holy Spirit and they've had some experiences with people who have the Holy Spirit and they're weird. And they're like, I don't want the Holy Spirit because I don't want to be weird. Listen, I want to tell you, those people were weird before they had the Holy Spirit, okay? They were weird then, they're going to be weird now. Nothing changes about you when you get the Holy Spirit except everything God wants to change. Can I get an amen? There's, there's no danger of becoming a weirdo by, by receiving or walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my caveat. You guys needed that. The point of this, though, and this is why we need to be hungry for and ready for and eager to receive the gifts of the Spirit, the presence of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, boldness for witness, all the things the Scripture tells us that we're meant to experience today. The reason we need that is because God wants to do a demonstration for people through your transformation. And you can't experience that transformation without the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. You don't want to stalemate your Christian life. You're like, I'm saved, I'm in, and good enough. You know? I'm just hanging tight until death. Do <laughs> you ever wonder why it is that God instantly saves us? He says we're justified, saved, we're ransomed, healed, forgiven, purified, sanctified. It's just boom, done, 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 done. But then when it gets to being transformed, it's this slow process. Why is that? You ever wonder that? If you didn't, you should. I had one pastor tell me, he said, God does that because once we're perfect, he'd have to take us home. And if he did that, we'd all just be dead. Like, well, that's a weird thing to say. Imagine that. You're like, I want you to come forward and receive Christ. And people raise their hand and they pray to receive Christ. Oh, poof, hit the ground. Just, just people dead. Just like church, dead. Just bring in the morticians and drag everybody out. That would not grow a church very fast at all. People were like, don't go in there. You might not come out alive, you know? Why does he do that? 
Why do we have this instant transition through faith in Jesus, but this ongoing transformation through the renewal of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is because God intends for your transformation to be a demonstration of his power to transform. Because God ought to get all the credit for the change he brings in us. And a lot, of, a lot of that happens right up front. You know, I remember when I got saved, I was 18, and I did not realize how big of an idiot I was. No 18-year-old does. Uh, you still haven't figured out that your parents know something. By 18, you're like, you know nothing. My life will be so much better when I can just leave and get out of here, get underneath of this oppressive, crazy rule, and do things the right way and the smart way and be happy. That's what needs to happen. That's how you see the world at 18. Turns out, no, you're just an idiot. That's what it is. You're just a total fool who has no perspective at all, and half the things you think are untrue, and buckle up to learn the hard way. Trust your parents. That was free. The point is, before Christ, whether you're 18 or 80, we're foolish because we're living life based on what we feel and hear and think and hear that's, that's uninfluenced by the truth of God and the presence and power of God. Do you know that? And so we're essentially foolish and we need, we're disobedient. We're slaves to the desires of our own heart. We're doing our best just to navigate life and to not mess things up with people. And we're just, it's all out here, and all external, just bumbling along, causing all kinds of problems. But this transition happens. And a lot of those things immediately happen. I mean, a lot of people get, they come to faith in Jesus and they're immediately delivered from alcoholism, drug addiction, immoral relationships. You know, part of the reason for that is that when you have everything God wants to give you through faith in Jesus, you don't need numbing agents anymore. Do you know it? You don't, you don't need help to get through life from drugs or alcohol because you had no hope and because you had no self-esteem and no self-worth when suddenly in Jesus, you see yourself the way he sees you suddenly the need for all those things can instantly disappear. Not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And so you experience freedom and you experience uh, deliverance and there's a, there's a big change. But then it's only a matter of time before you go and be a jerk to somebody. And you're like, what? What is going on? Like I was doing so well and all of a sudden I'm a jerk again. And it's because God doesn't change you completely instantly. That's a transformation. But here's what should be happening in your closest relationships. If you're a, if you're a faith-filled follower of Jesus and a spirit-filled disciple of Jesus, you ought to be changing in such a way that the people around you notice. They ought to say, you have less stress and more peace. You have more self-control and less attitude. You have more hope and less fear. I'm watching something happen. What is the source of that change? I want some. And the answer is Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what God wants to do. Listen, if we get this and live this, there aren't buildings big enough to house the church that will grow as fast as the people. Pe Everyone in the world is so hungry for the transformation I'm talking about. They're going to psychologists and sociologists and college. They're trying to educate themselves out of it. They're trying to medicate themselves out of it. They're going to pain management. They're taking, I mean, so much stuff just trying to ah, help me cope. When the reality is 99% of that is a problem that can be solved right here through knowing God truly for being his, for being a blood-bought child of God. And the rest of it can get worked out when he moves in and never leaves you and never forsakes you and speaks the truth and encourages you and strengthens you and comforts you and gives you power to obey. 
opens your eyes to see his instruction from his word and to love it and value it and live it. And when that happens, it is divinely attractive to the people around you. There are thousands of human beings that we will interact with just this week who will not come to listen to me preach, not once. But your life will be a powerful sermon and your transformation will put on display the demonstration of God's power. That's our growth strategy. That's the blueprints for building. So here it is. I didn't give it to you in the text. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that, pay attention to buts and so that's, they're important. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You need the Holy Spirit. It has to start from transition, then transformation, inside out, not outside in. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You see that for people? You see what God's aim? Your transformation is not just about your health, wellness, success, uh, being awesome. We're not just trying to make your actual life line up with your Facebook page, okay? That's not the goal of this whole thing. The goal of this thing is that your transformation would actually be profitable for other people. That your transformation would actually prove excellent and, and, and upbuilding and strengthening for the people around you. And so we should, verse nine, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. Why? They are unprofitable and worthless. It's part of the reason why I didn't spend a lot of time in the sermon talking about the four pneumatological positions on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all the different groups and why they're wrong. You know why? Because that would be a waste of your time. You know that? I mean, think about it for a second. You get on Facebook, you scroll through, and somebody's put an inflammatory news article that's posted from a post from a post who knows where the origin of it was, and they leave it with a description, I'm just going to put this right here. (laughs) And you can't stand it, and you don't read the article, but you read the headline, and you know this person, so you know what it says, you don't need to read it, and you just fire off all the reasons why they're an idiot. Hit send, and you get that instant little rush of gratification of anger absolved, point made, I am awesome. And really, all that's happened is you just wasted eight minutes. That's it. Because it wasn't good for you, and it wasn't good for them, and it wasn't good for any of the people that read the stream. It was bad for everyone. It was unprofitable and worthless and a waste of time. So stop! I think we should stop calling it Facebook and call it Avoid Book. Just hijack it for all the good stuff. Look at pictures of your grandkids. Tell people you love them. No negative comments. No angry emojis. Like, what are we doing out there besides wasting our lives with worthless and unprofitable time wasters when the reality is there is a world that needs to see the transformation, the demonstration of only what God can do? Which is why in verse 10 and 11, and I'll throw this in there because it's in there and it's important, it's not just a matter of controversies, there's always people involved. And so what do you do with the people? And there's this little disclaimer that Paul adds. And I would imagine Titus, he's probably an Enneagram 9, a peacemaker. He wants everybody to come in. He wants everybody to be a part. Let's all, let's just, let's work this out together. Let's, I know, let's put our differences behind us and group hug. Let's do that, okay? And so he says, put away the, the controversies, yes, but sometimes you have to put away the quarreler. Look at what he says in verses 10 and 11. As for the person who stirs up division, After warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So the gracious thing is he doesn't cancel him the first time he talks. Warn him once, you know what? Give him a second chance, but after that, you're done. Do you see that? This is just super helpful, practical wisdom. And you need this. We all need this, because it'll come your way too. On a regular basis, 
any given Sunday, there'll be 10 or 15 people in one or both of our services who've never been to Christ Church before, and they're looking for a church. And sometimes they'll come to the church, and they'll like it, and they'll say nice things, and we'll be number three on their list of seven, and they'll land somewhere else, and I'll see them around town. Did you find a church? Yeah, we found a church. Oh, we're over here. We're over here. Yay, awesome. But every once in a while, someone feels the need to email me and tell me why our church is awful. They do. They send me, they say, I visited this week, and this was bad, and this was bad, and this was bad, and this was bad, and you missed out on an opportunity because I'm not going to be in a church that's like this, 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 or this. And then they sign it anonymous. <laughs> they do. I get those emails. And I just want you to know if that's you and you're lurking to see if I talk about it, I don't care. The staff sends me your emails, and I know that they're, I know that they're a little... My, the staff, they're so nice. Everybody on our, on our team is just so, so, so kind and empathetic and nice. And I know they send me these things. They're like, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but we got this nasty gram and I just, yeah, I just have to send it along and they send it to me and I write them back. This is what all of them say. I'll show you the inbox. Here's what my reply is. Bye, Felicia. That's a Friday reference. I watch Friday. Bye, Felicia. You can Google it. You don't know. It's fine. Bye. I don't, you know why? I don't. I literally don't care at all. In fact, I tell my team, I'm really happy that I was able to disappoint them so early, you know? Because I'd hate for them to come here for six months and then feel this way. That would be awful for all of us. So great, you hated it. Why do you have to tell me? You wasted your time. And also, I don't care (laughs) at all. You passed 14 churches to get here. There's 40 in Port Orange and 400 in Volusia County. Go criticize somebody else. You know what I'm saying? Like, you guys are awesome. I'm so glad you're here. I love you. So thanks for staying. And you're welcome. But don't we have bigger fish to fry than criticizing everything and giving people a hard time and arguing about stuff that doesn't matter? There's a world full of people who are dying and and ending up disconnected from God forever, who are causing lives to spiral out of control, generations to suffer. We've got really important things to do. So stop typing and start loving people. Can I get amen? And so, yes, we'll warn people. And we'll give people a second chance because God's gracious. But after that, bye, Felicia. (laughs) Moving on. Because I can tell this is making some of you uncomfortable. You're like, I didn't know my pastor cared so little about the opinion of other people. I was hoping for better than that. Well, transformation, demonstration. Stick around, you never know. I might grow up. But for now, I want to see people's lives changed. And I want to see their lives changed because they're watching your life change before their eyes. They knew what you were like, and they see something different. That is divinely attractive. So let me wrap up. Go back to verse one. You see the word? This is the most encouraging phrase in this whole passage. Look at verse one. Somebody say, remind them. Remind them. Aren't you glad that God recognizes that we need a reminder? Because these things are foundational. These things are uh, eternal. This is the stuff we build the church upon. This right here, brothers and sisters, the good news about Jesus, we should kind of know this and be able to hold on to it. But let's be honest, we are people who when we miss a doctor's appointment, our first thought is, well, nobody called to remind me. Isn't that true? Because we so quickly lose that which is truly important. And I love that Paul says to Titus, hey, remind them that you're meant to be devoted to good works. Oh, and remind them of where they came from and remind them that you can't fix this from the outside in. But remind them that God did the impossible. 
so that he could do something in here that would work from the outside, inside out. Remind them. And you know what? Insist on these things because these are the things that matters. These other things over here, they don't matter. Don't waste your time. But insist on these things and remind them. You know what you can expect if you keep coming to Christ Church? A lot of the same. A lot about Jesus. A lot about the power of the Holy Spirit. A lot about God's faithfulness. A lot about God's purpose for you. A lot about how God feels about you. A lot about his plans for other people through you. And a lot about what really matters. Lord willing, and if I mature a little more. But I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you. And I don't know where you exist on this spectrum. I don't know where you exist on this spectrum of understanding or what you've heard about the Holy Spirit. But the, the, the downside of, of being a fired up Pentecostal is that maybe you look back to this one moment when you had an encounter with God and you call that the baptism of the Spirit and it's never happened again like that for you. And God has more. Maybe he wants to do this again and again and again for the next season in a new situation and for your new need and at your next stage of development. Maybe he wants to meet with you again. Maybe he wants to give you new gifts and new power and new strength for tomorrow. And maybe you thought that was all there was and so you've stopped asking. Or maybe you're on the other pole and you think, you know what, God did his thing and I believe in Jesus and I'm good and I don't need anything else. But God's got an entire life filled with miraculous transformation that's a demonstration of his power that's not just to benefit the people around you, but also you. It's gonna be life-changing. And so what we wanna have is what Paul says, an eager desire, 1 Corinthians 14, eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. And so I would love nothing more than for every person that calls Christ Church home to be people who are rushing to get into God's presence to receive whatever God wants to give you again and again and again. That's why I love so many of you who can worship with us weekly. I know life keeps a lot of people out of church every week, but as much as we can be together, we want to be together. And it's so easy for us to slip into, ah, it's easier to watch the service on Tuesday night in my jammies. I got things I want to do on Sunday, but listen, church is like watching a fireplace on your television. You can see it and you can hear it, but you can't feel its warmth. But when we get up in the house of God, in the presence of God to meet with him, you will begin to encounter him in ways that you can't quite describe how it looks different. And you can't quite describe why it sounds different because it looks and sounds the same, but you can feel it. And he wants to meet with you. And I want us to just be people who are hungry for the power and presence of God, who are willing to say, God, if you've got more for me, I'm wide open. I'm ready to receive it. And then watch what he does as he puts his power on display in your transformation and draws more and more people to faith in Jesus. Amen. And so we're going to sing a song. And I've told you this before. I'll tell you again, I can fit a whole other row of chairs right here but I want to make sure that there's room to when God's doing something in your heart, you can get out of your chair and take 12 steps forward and put your hands out and during a song and say, God, whatever it is that you want to do, I'm open. I want it. I'm hungry. I want to receive it from you. I want to touch from your hand. I want wisdom from your mind. I want passion from your heart. Whatever God is stirring in you, let's take advantage of this space and feel his warmth. Amen. God, we thank you and praise you for what you only can do and what you are doing. Lord, we acknowledge you in this place that your word is alive to us, but it's attended by the power of your Holy Spirit. God, thank you for choosing to bring about a transition and for placing us in this period of time where we receive the gift of your Holy Spirit to walk with us and to speak and lead and empower and gift 
God, I pray that you would create in us a hunger for more of you. And that as we come to you with that hunger, God, that we would be satisfied and filled and transformed and that you would fulfill your purpose for us, in us, and through us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand.